0: Today we're going to discuss uh, the evolution and role of intelligence agencies, especially foreign intelligence agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency, in uh, American democracy, especially in the 20th century. How have these agencies evolved? What vital role have they played for our society? And how can we think about the relationship and sometimes the tensions between having secret intelligence agencies and being an open democracy? Uh, We have with us uh, one of the foremost uh, practitioners and uh, experts on the topic. Uh, And we're very lucky that he's willing to share his time with us. Uh, His name is John Seifer. He retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. I'm sure we could have a seven-hour podcast Mm -hmm. on his stories. Uh, At the time of his retirement, he was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides CIA activities all across the globe. That's quite a job. He served multiple overseas tours as chief of station and Deputy Chief of Station in many countries in Europe, Asia, and various other high-threat environments. Uh, John Seifer also served as the lead instructor. This is really interesting in the CIA's clandestine training school, and he was a regular lecturer at the CIA's leadership development program. Uh, he's a recipient, and this is this is quite an achievement. He's a recipient of the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal that very few people uh, actually receive. Uh, John, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's fun. So before we turn to our discussion with John, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Supposed to Forget. Supposed to Forget. Let's hear it. My
2: mind is frozen with the picture of some Le Carre spy novel hero climbing over the Berlin Wall. It takes me, still stuck in time, around him like a 360-degree focus. And in his face is arrogance, is violence, is stubbornness. And zooming out, we can all see the absurdity of it, the blank concrete, the guard towers, the long lines of barbed wire, like chopping a city in half for no reason. And it seems to me sometimes that we are obsessed with secrecy, with spy novel CIA operatives behind the Iron Curtain because we just don't want to see the broken pieces that sit in our hands. The botched assassinations, the rampant racism of the secret filing cabinets, Martin Luther King Jr.'s affairs. And when did we forget all the failed missions, all the Bay of Pigs, anti-Sandinista, assassinations of Nicod and Diem? When did we choose to ignore the servers with all of our emails, with all of our midnight pizza delivery receipts? When did we forget privacy in favor of rogue individualism? And I know that's not fair, I know that there are those who sit behind computer monitors and have nothing to do with it, analysts who try and get to the bottom of Belgian politics. I know I should be grateful for the OSS who saved all our butts in World War II, I know I should feel that communism was always the greater evil, that no one should care if drones randomly assassinate terrorists in the middle of desert 7,000 miles away. I know I'm supposed to lose perspective, to find the naive moral blindness refreshing. I know I am supposed to forget the violence, supposed to embrace the men in black. I know I am supposed to find it all so charming. But sometimes I think we all can't help but wonder, can't help but doubt, that it is in our interest to send violence and secrecy through the alleyways of the world like a disease. Hmm.
0: What is your poem about, Zachary? My poem
2: is really about um, the contradictions um, between having an agency... um, like many of the intelligence agencies in the United States government uh, and how that contradicts with democracy and in many ways our
0: democratic interests overseas, but how at the same time they're still important institutions. Right. Sometimes necessary, right? Yeah. So, John, this is a good place to turn to you. How did you get involved in this field of work?
1: Well, I guess like everybody, it gets involved in sort of a variety of things. So I grew up in upstate New York. My father was a history history professor. My mother's a, <laughs> a librarian. Um, I was always interested in history. Uh, I had never traveled overseas until my junior year in college. I went to London for a year and really enjoyed the notion of being overseas. So I wanted to do something that had impact. That had a political impact. That sort of that mattered to our country and these type of things. I ended up going to to uh, get my graduate degree at, at Columbia University in New York and and applied to a number of places in the government. Uh, back then, they used to have a thing called the Presidential Management Intern. Mm-hmm. We could work in different places. Right. And I worked for a summer at the State Department's Intelligence and Research Bureau mm-hmm. and sort of understood, started to learn a little bit about the community. The CIA is a much bigger organization that, that that in took younger people whereas the INR at State Department tended to be you know career professionals who were sort of foreign service officers right it wasn't it wasn't an intelligence collection agency it was an analytical arm and so I applied to the agency among other places and and got in and I got in to be in the analytic cadre. So as you know, CIA has sort of two big several big tribes, but two main tribes. One is the collection side mm-hmm. of the house. This is the overseas, the espionage side that, that people live overseas and collect intelligence, human intelligence. And then a large analytic cadre, which is almost like a a university with right. professors, right? So there's experts on every conceivable thing, the Chinese politics, Iranian missile systems, Russian tank, you know. Right. Right. And they they receive intelligence from all of the agencies. So there's CIA spies that are collecting intelligence. There's the NSA that is listening in on things. There's diplomats overseas. There's academic—they're they're meant right. to be experts and take it all in to provide analysis to our policymakers. So I came in initially to be on the analytics side, and in many ways, because I didn't know much, and even in the process of applying, they wouldn't tell me as much as I really wanted to about the clandestine side. Right. But when you come in, there's sort of a CIA 101 where you go through a process with everybody together. This is on the farm, as they call it. right? Well, no, that's later. Oh, okay. This is still there's a process of almost a year or two before you would go to the farm uh, to learn things. And, and in that process, I learned much more about it. Um, the people that I was sort of befriending and were the people who were in the clandestine side of the house. And uh, I didn't think that I wanted a career where I was tra- traveling overseas as much. But as I as I learned more, I actually was able to switch over. And part of the process when you come into the intelligence agencies is a long, you know, security process, but also like psychological testing. And so they sort of have a feel for which place they think you'd be better. So I was able to switch over to the clandestine service. Uh, pretty early. So I never actually worked in the analytical side of oh, the house. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And then it, and then, is that process, eventually after what we used to call interns to, to work on different desks to get a get a breadth of experience, you then go to the farm to learn the, the nuts and bolts of surveillance detection and recruiting spies and all those things that you're, you're, you're talking about. Um, and then... You go and you take languages and prepare to go to right. different overseas assignments, right. usually for two to four years of time overseas. Mm. And so I really enjoyed it. It's almost like a mini sort of a master's degree every few right. years, right? So you're getting ready. You're going to go to Japan. So you learn Japanese language for a year or more. And sure. you learn the issues and what's important sure. and the culture. And then you go to live there for two or four years and meet people and do the issues. And then you're going to go to India. And so then right. you're going to come back and do the whole process
0: again. It sounds fascinating. And it's I think fun. there's a reason why we, we as non-intelligence experts are drawn to these stories. As you see it, what is the role for clandestine service in a democracy before World War II? We didn't have much of one. Uh, Henry Stimson, you know, famously said, "You know, the gentlemen don't read other gentlemen's mail." Henry Stimson was Secretary of War and Secretary of State in the nineteen thirties. Uh, so, what is the role, as you see it, for a clandestine service
1: in a democracy? Well, interestingly, everybody was reading our mail at the time. Of <laughs> and, course, and we just
0: weren't reading other people's mail. Well, and mail. then
1: shortly thereafter, in wartime, we we determined that it was necessary to, to yes. read the Japanese and and, and Nazi uh, mail in the process, and and. Um, yeah, it's an interesting—you talk about the balance there, you know, and there's there's a couple different pieces of this. There's the one piece where because the work is often secret, it then can be imbued with either negative or positive right. things. So in, when people talk about CIA, they're often too positive thinking it's this wonderful thing and we're doing all these crazy things that we're not doing, or too negative that we're, we're these vicious people. You talk about blood and murder and stuff. Right. like. For the most part, we're bureaucrats doing a job that— that our policymakers and presidents and, and congressional overstate are, are, are asking for You're us not to James do. Bond, no, definitely <laughs> not James Bond. We like to think we're James Bond sometimes, but doesn't doesn't work out that way. And so, yeah, it, it's really hard in a democracy, right? Because because there's that constant balance between security and order, and then freedom on the other side. And so th- this balance is constantly being reassessed for every generation. What is the right way to go when when we feel safe? Oftentimes, we think the things that that our clandestine service and other things are doing for us are maybe a little going too far. And when we're scared, sometimes we pull back and we want them to do more than we expect them to do. Um, And for those of us whose job it is day to day, we need to have that understanding and where are those guidelines, where are those guardrails of what we can do and should be expected to do. Because we want to be effective. We want to collect information that policymakers need Um, and, frankly— we have to steal it. We're what we call the collectors of last resort, right? right? So, if academics and businessmen and diplomats and all these other ways can collect information for the United States government, you don't need people like us to steal it. But if it's something the US government believes it needs for its security and nobody else can get it, they put us to try to find it and steal it. And frankly, even in that case, it's not, it's an inefficient business. Right. It may be effective when we're successful. But most people don't want to spy. Most people don't want to commit treason against their country. Sure. So, so it's a it's an interesting business. It, when when it works, it can be really really beneficial to security. But it, but it's it doesn't always work. And and you know we're we're always going back and forth about how far should we go because we want to use all of our authorities because we take seriously the defense of the United States sure. and taking sure. and getting information to policymakers and we we don't want to go too far because we because it's important that the the US population that the citizenship has some relationship with this intelligence agencies and support what they do.
0: Right. As we were talking about before we started recording, right? I mean from your point of view, when you're doing this very uh, difficult work, it's to your benefit if the American public understands part of it because that that way they can offer you the kind of support that you need, right?
1: I think that's right. And you know, when things go wrong, you know we're sort of blasted for, it. and it, it can be very difficult because you know sometimes we're put in positions where our policymakers, our presidents, our administrations, or asking for things that they haven't gauged where the the population is. And so it's interesting, some of the thing you mentioned in your poem talks about some of the things in our history, you can see that we haven't always gotten that balance right. And so many of the things from the early years about... When the CIA was first started in 1947, in those early years, the Eisenhower administration and others, I think they tended to overuse this new weapon, if you right. will. Right. And you know, th- this is where all these you know overthrowing countries and stuff right. sort of happened. And so, I find, for example, like on, on Twitter and stuff, people will be attacking me for things. I'm like, the things you're coming after me for were before I was born. Right. But you know, so so it is a constant balance, and it's and and it's never going to be perfect, but but it's necessary that. People in that business take those things seriously. Take the ethical and moral dilemmas quite seriously, and, and try to understand, you know, what the public and and the administrations want of them. Zachary,
0: exactly.
2: well, you were talking about like government overthrows and things like that. How do we how do we fit uh, covert military operations that often are within intelligence agencies into the idea of uh, intelligence collecting agency?
1: Yeah, so this, is, this is very interesting. So so primarily our job is to collect intelligence, right? So we're trying to collect intelligence to, fi- to fit into that analytical business that, that provides support to policymakers. We also, from, you know, from the beginning, we're given the authority to do what we call covert action, which is essentially taking action on behalf of the U.S. government. And that's, from those early days, sort of the overthrow or, of countries or attempts to do so. Um, and so that those are very sort of different things, right? Um, and uh, to get involved in what they call covert action, you need what's called a presidential finding. So the, the CIA doesn't just choose to do these things or, or, in fact, many times nowadays wants to do these things. Because oftentimes, I'm sort of a little bit of digress here, is when administrations have a very difficult time figuring out what is the right policy or they have a very difficult time uh foreign policy challenge, they will try to use the secrecy of the CIA to take to to take action rather than do the hard work of creating a policy and working yes. it through and getting support from the from the American people and from allies and others. And that often puts the intelligence agencies in a difficult place. So so in recent years, that debate back and forth when an administration wants, say, I'm just making this up, the, the CIA to do something in Syria to support rebels in Syria that discussion will go back and forth essentially saying well what is the policy you know we we can take action but if the action is not in, not in behalf of a very clear policy it's very hard to grade our work it's very hard to decide sure. Sure. you know what we're doing how it's sure. going and so so that those are two distinct and different things and different intelligence services around the world have different versions of those but but we've had that covert act action activities since the beginning
0: yeah. and just to be clear right uh especially in in recent decades uh, there are very very strict legal uh restrictions on uh, the covert actions you can take and you do need for most cases to have authority going to the white house right you have to have those for all cases right. yeah so so anything that you're doing in the covert re- realm when you're you know planting bugs in Iranian software or things like that. You're doing that with presidential approval and presidential oversight. Is that correct? That's
1: right. And especially since 1972 and the post-Watergate period, there was concern that, that, you know, Congress and others that that the that the CIA was sort of becoming rogue and was pushing you know there's stories of assassination attempts against Fidel Castro in Cuba, and you know in Iran overthrowing the Shah you know in the Shah right. you know, putting the Shah back in yeah. Lumumba all these kind of issues, and many of them which seemed to be successes at the time for various administrations obviously had sort of follow on effects or unintended consequences, and so by 1972 uh, Congress really looked at this issue, and Gerald Ford put in a number of guidelines in terms of, you know, no assassinations, uh, stronger congressional oversight where Congress would have to be informed of all of these kind of activities. Uh, Presidentials would have to give written findings to take any of these kind of covert actions we talk about. So in our world, at least since in my almost 30 years of time, we were very focused on sort of the legalities and the ethics of of what we're doing and, and needed support from the administrations. I mean, by no means are our intelligence services either partisan or doing things on their own. And so that's sort of one of the things I worry about with this administration is they tend to think that the FBI and the Justice Department and, and the intelligence agencies are, you know, sort of personal playthings of right. the president of the United States.
0: So so it's good to, to emphasize this point. In your experience, uh, The intelligence agencies are filled with nonpartisan individuals. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit?
1: (laughs) Well, it's really funny because so so for me, you know, I spent, again, almost 30 years and I with you know, very close friendships. We're actually a very small cadre. There's more FBI special agents in New York City than there are CIA clandestine officers around the world. Really? Wow. And so, you know, we tend to know each other and train together and back sure. and forth and are very close. And, you know, in some of these sort of places in Moscow and Pakistan and places where you're with people in very sort of dicey situations, you get to know them very well. So I have a lot of very, very close friends. I have no idea what their political leanings are. And it wasn't until I retired and got onto either Twitter or Facebook <laughs> that I realized some of my friends, oh my God, he's left wing or right wing or whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, it's- And it, they
0: were retired then too. They yes, would not yeah, have yeah, been yeah. on Twitter. No, they no, no, were,
1: no, no, yeah. no, absolutely not when you're inside. And and um, and so, yeah, that's really pushed us in the beginning. It has, to be a, it has to be a politicization of intelligence is sort of one of the worst crimes you could do. And therefore, you know, never in my time, in any meeting, on any operation, in any country, was there a discussion of, you know, what a political party wanted or what a specific – somebody related to politics wanted? It, it, was, it was all – it's national security. You know, you do support the president of the United States from whatever party they happen to be, but, but by no means – you know, are, are we trying to push any... It's like being in the military initiative? in that sense, right? 100%.
0: You're, you're following the orders that come from your superiors, right? right? As long as they're legal orders. Uh, so that brings us then to the question of torture, which which is we have to talk about, it seems, right? If, if the actions of the CIA and others are um, supposed to be within a legal framework, how did we get into the use of torture in Iraq and elsewhere?
1: Less so in Iraq, well... It goes back to the thing we talked about, that balance before. So um, when Americans you know, feel safe, sort of like now, there's, we can look at those things and, and they look quite <laughs> aggressive in things we don't want. But after 9-11, with the fear that there was more to come, that there was more bombers, that terrorism was out there and we, we, were, we were unprepared for it, uh, Americans essentially felt much less safe and there was more of a push for intelligence agencies and military to do more. And so it's interesting to me as an insider—this is sort of inside baseball—that that many of the same politicians who later said, you know, this was torture and this is unacceptable were ones at the time, as we were trying to figure out where are the limits, what do we need to do, were pushing us to do more. I can remember senior senators and others saying when they saw the program, like, this is it. This is all you're doing. Like, you need to be doing more. Wow. I can remember the president of the United States— saying things like, you know, why aren't you, why, why are you, why are you stopping that person suffering? You should be pushing forward more. The president
0: of the United States saying that.
1: Yes. So, so, I mean, we, we forget, you know, how feelings and emotions play into these things at times. And and that's understandable. And that's part of that back and forth and finding where, where the balance is. And I think we've now determined, and I think that's perfectly saying that that some of the things that we did when we were scared and we believed that we needed to do are un, are unacceptable, and that's good. If there's laws that make it clear where those lines are, that's better for an operative sure. to know those kind of things. Sure, sure. And I want to make clear I, I wasn't involved in that program. Um, I have I know many good people who who believe that they were doing what needed to be done to protect the United States, and and that the program was looked over by lawyers the Justice Department, the the administration, and therefore believed that they were doing important works, and so. I tend I think probably those same people would say now hey you put us in a position where the american people and the politicians weren't clear about what you wanted, and therefore, and weren't willing to support it when the when the times got tough, and therefore, they would have preferred clear right. guidance. Right. And how, maybe sorry, go ahead, exactly. How do we prevent that,
0: though?
2: I mean, that's an, that's a, I think, a, a very um, truthful and fair explanation of how how this sort of situation arose. But how do we prevent these sort of emotions from leading to actions that, in many ways, are against our interests?
1: Um, yes. Yeah, so you know I'm, i don't want to be in the defend <laughs> um, torture thing here and it would be a much longer discussion sure, sure. but it was really an interesting thing is sort of what happened there's some practical things that yeah. led us in this direction so 9-11 happened we were looking for al qaeda we were trying to figure out where these people were what is the next level there was information out there that there was more to come um, and we started to to find and capture some of these al qaeda leaders Overseas. And so you let me give you an example. If we caught a senior al-Qaeda person in Pakistan, the Pakistanis would say, "Uh, that's great. They need to get. We don't want them staying here. Don't leave them here. And so you can imagine someone who's involved and has, has done what seems to be a successful thing. We've caught this person who's trying to attack the United States. And writing a message back home, okay, we're going to send this person back home to be dealt with. And immediately it comes back, uh, Congress has changed and written a quick law that none of these people can come to the United States. And we're like, okay. So, you know, we're an intelligence organization. We don't do interrogations. This is not our business. Um, Department of Defense, you guys have interrogators. This is part of your job. You need to take these people. And then Rumsfeld, who's who's sort of a very savvy political guy. no, DOD won't take any of these people. We won't do this kind of stuff. And so all of a sudden you're stuck with, you're holding a prisoner who wants to kill Americans in a place with a country where they're saying you got to get rid of them and, and you can't send them back to the United States and the Department of Defense won't do this stuff. So what do you do? Do you let them go? Do you let one of these people? And, and so it became, you know, almost like a series of practical things that ended up, us becoming jailers and becoming interrogators, and I went through training. CIA, we didn't learn how to do any right, of those right. things. But the CIA is also the covert action operation arms. When when president tells you will do this, we ended up doing it. And in retrospect, in pressure and in things, you know, it was it was not a well run and well done program. And I think it probably hurt the CIA far more than it, that helped the CIA. And you, you have to remember I mean, some of these things, you know, c- catching someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the brains behind 9-11, who right. who sawed off Danny Pearl's head with a with a blunt knife right. on video. When you catch these kind of people and you believe this is the person who has answers to, to questions about what is what is what is next, you, you know, the fact that he was was sort of pressured and waterboarded and stuff. There's a lot of people and probably the majority of Americans still would support some of the things that were done i mean i think if you probably if you polled americans they probably support those things and so i think waterboarding and i agree now and i think most of us agree is is too far and it's torture but the cia they did waterboard three people and these people are were (laughs) heinous individuals that if you if i showed you the video of them sawing people's heads off sure you might in that moment also tend to agree that you know putting water in their face is not the worst thing but yeah it's it Um'm just the tension, the harness, yes, it it ended up hurting us. I'm glad it's very clear that there's laws that it can't be done. It wasn't as clear. In the days after 9/11, right. Well,
0: and I think it's so valuable, John, that that uh, you're here to talk about this with with our audience, and especially with a large number of young listeners, because we, as a society, I think, need to talk about this in a, in a in an informed way, rather than just taking positions and yelling at one another to understand how difficult these issues are. What you're describing are the difficulties of being in an occupation mode when you're in another society, right. and you have you, you you confront all these difficult questions. Uh, and we have to do better in the future, but we'll only do better by confronting the reality yes, of Yes, and, and, and dealing
1: with it and not making it black and white or cartoonish. And so, yeah, it has to be – society has to discuss these things. Our representatives have to be clear about what it means uh, because you're going to expect soldiers and others to, to take action based on what the society says is – is the right way to go, right? And there are some distinctions between you mentioned between intelligence agencies and military, and some of these things get conflated. You know, Abu Ghraib and all those yes. things that we saw that had nothing to do those with were military with program, prisons, right? Correct. And so it's yeah. I hopefully our society has has looked at these things and, and processed them, but I'm I, I think it. It needs to be an ongoing issue. right?
0: So we have a number of student questions here, excellent student questions. Uh, One from uh, Marissa Xiong is actually about uh, this very issue and the legacies of history. How did we come to this moment? Do the experiences of the CIA in Latin America, you referred already to operations vis-a-vis Fidel Castro. How do those influence uh, how we've come to this moment? Let's hear Marissa's question, if we could.
1: Hi, my name is Marissa, and I am a freshman advertising major. So to my knowledge, the CIA played a vital role throughout the 20th century in American foreign affairs and events, such as Latin America and the Cold War. How did these previous events set a precedence for current policies and actions in the CIA, or do they have any effect at all on how government intelligence operates today? Hmm. I, I think... Uh, All institutions, intelligence agencies certainly, have to learn from the past, and, and, you know, their background is part of what develops culture. So I worked a lot as I grew more senior in my work working with the FBI on counterintelligence questions and trying to catch spies that are working for the Russians or the Chinese or others. Um, And it's really interesting when you work with another agency or, or institution who's working in a similar space. So military, intelligence, uh, FBI investigators—they're all working in the sp- same space, but their cultures are very, very different because they grow up through a different, a different lens. You know, so in many ways, the, the FBI are cops, and in many ways, CIA are robbers. Our job is to, you know, steal information from overseas. Every place we work, the work we do is illegal in that country, but everything we do inside has to be followed strict laws. You know, ethics you know, follow the law. I can't operate in a fast and loose way inside my own bureaucracy like we can to try to steal overseas. So um, each institution builds up a culture over time of what it's trying to do. Um, and, you know, CIA people have to be used to be dealing in sort of ambiguous gray zones. They have to be very clear about what's ethical and moral. They have to have very—they have to really be interested in love living overseas, living in the cultures, working with foreigners— much of the work we do is with foreign intelligence agencies. I mean, a lot of people don't under, don't understand that probably the sure. bulk of the intelligence we collect is actually with partners right. overseas and sometimes with countries that we don't even like that well. Mm-hmm. We work together on things that work together. And the FBI has developed a culture around, you know, investigations and security and, and it's a black and white sort of, or is it right or wrong? Um, and so, yes, I think CIA has learned a lot of, over the years of, of from things we did as a CIA operative or practitioner, some of those things that you talk about from those early years in Latin America and things, I I always find it frustrating to try to to defend them because I wouldn't defend them inside either. And so we want clear policy. We want to be doing what we think the American public wants us to do. We don't want to be considered like out of control rogue Mm -hmm. elements. And so I think on some of those things, I think we have learned. I think some of the things that the U.S. government got into uh, was a mistake and hopefully we should learn from them so that when we do these things in the future um, you know we don't have to pay the pay the price for them
0: and and, and it, it seems to me that that uh, transfers over to the the next set of questions regarding uh, privacy uh, you talk about collaborating with the FBI clearly a lot of what you do and what you do very well as you said is collect material mm-hmm. uh, often collect material that people don't want you to collect. And uh, our next question is from uh, Alan Penochet-Paul, and he asks about these issues of privacy and how you think about that, especially in our current world. Uh, can we hear that question?
1: Sure. Hi. My name is
2: Alan Penochet-Paul, and I'm a senior computer engineering student. My question is, in a world with so much of our data being collected for various uses, how do you find the balance between privacy and security in the interest of national security?
1: Wow, that's it's a big question. And I don't I think I don't think that is something that the US government and certainly the US society has come to terms with. You know, and I see even corporations and others are collecting so much data on people that even the US government can't or won't collect. And so we're in a really difficult position with that. For someone like me who's a clandestine operative overseas, my job is to collect as much data from a foreign target, if you will, not from friends and allies and that type of thing but you know iranian russian chinese things that north korean that that the u.s government has decided that they need to collect against so in terms of i i don't see a limit or at least in terms of what we can steal from them but it only needs to be things that again we can't get in any other way and we determine that we need uh, in terms of using data from Americans or from companies there are very very strict limits in the US government so for example there the the uh, FBI has legal authority to collect information on Americans if it's predicated by a specific investigation we in CIA can't collect american data by in fact if 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 by if we're collecting on something overseas and there's information related to americans it has to be expunged or not allowed to to look at that so um CIA is not really the institution that's going to have to grasp grapple with U.S. data and how that's going to be used. But I do believe in a bigger context as the U.S. government, we really have to figure this out.
0: How, how do you think about counterintellig- counterterrorism? So, for instance, if you have someone who's come to the United States uh, who you think is a, is a suspect, it seems it's hard in tracking someone who you should be tracking not to run up against data from Americans, right?
1: Right. That's why Agencies, and institutions need to work together, very right? So NSA and CIA, who are foreign collectors, need to be very clear about when someone might become the U.S., so that the FBI and domestic agencies can deal with that right. part of it. And and it's really an important sort of wall that we that we take very seriously about, you know. And it's not something that's sort of joked about. Oh, we that we takes that. Oh, that we're just going to do this if we need to do it. We really don't. And probably we lose some element of security because of, because of that. But as a country, we've decided that that's very important. We don't want these agencies, if used inappropriately, can be quite powerful and quite dangerous to democracy. Sure. So therefore, those things post-1972 in particular that, that make it very clear about what we can do and can't do are things that we take very seriously.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I think the question needs to be asked also, John, uh, in your experience, are there rogue elements in the CIA? You see these salacious hmm. stories all the time.
1: In any large group of people there are fools, idiots, and, and, <laughs> and, and things and those need to be to, to be dealt with. You know, we sort of and I'm I'm being a little I'm overdoing this here, we say we're given incredible authorities to do really important work, and if you abuse that authority, you should be destroyed. So like our you know, if if our authorities are pulled back because people are abusing them, that's gonna hurt our ability to do things in the future. So those rogue actors who take action that they shouldn't take need to be dealt with harshly and severely and and quickly. So are there rogue actors? Are there people who misbehave and do things wrong? Yes. Hopefully we catch them and stop them. Are there rogue elements like offices and not that I'm, no, not that I'm aware of. Uh, And as I've moved up to the you know, through the ranks to become more senior, you deal with these problems. You you get, okay, this person has done this sure. activity, not that, you sure. know. This and what's hard now is I was just chatting with a, some friends here, in fact, like Steve Slick, who's a—, sure. who's a we, we My were, colleague, we, my colleague. Yeah, Steve we Slick. were uh, roommates together, Slick and Cypher, at the farm. Um, we're talking about some of these things that we're seeing that the administration and the president is taking action on things that, you know— if, we, if I used a government phone to make a personal call, I could get fired. If I took a government car to stop home on the way somewhere, I could get fired. Like these really strict kind of guidelines that, that we see in administration doing things, you know, with the Justice Department or for personal benefit or, or financial benefit that, that would never in any means be accepted sure. inside these bureaucracies. Sure. And so it's really an odd place for us to be.
0: And and one of the really impressive things in your career is how much time you've spent being trained and also training others. And the sign of an organization that doesn't allow rogue elements is an organization that is constantly training itself to identify and understand its ethical and legal limitations. And certainly the CIA invests a lot in that. I mean, you were an instructor yourself, in fact.
1: I was an instructor at the farm training. And, and, and that training tends to be very um, exercise driven, preparing people to be overseas. We also do you know, training as people move through the ranks to be more senior in terms of um, those issues, leadership, and, and you know what what are the boundaries? What are the ethical boundaries? You know, it, it's a it's an ongoing process. It's something that can never really sort of stop. Continuous improvement. Right, right. right. And and the military and other places do that too. You sure. know, called hot washes or after action reports or trying to look at these things. I think I think most of our institutions are pretty professional and take these things seriously. But again, that's why law enforcement exists. There's people that in any organization in, you know, in the banking world that steal money and there's people in the right. <laughs> insurance, player that, sure. you know,
0: and so human nature is human. nature. I
1: think the intelligence agencies are, are slightly do better than many of these places because the, the input process, you, you know, people are taking polygraphs and right. security backgrounds and questioning their friends and, you know, and so hopefully these ethical issues and, and potential criminal issues are cut long before someone ends up in suicide CIA. That makes
0: a lot of sense. So uh, our final question, which we always like to close on, John, is really looking forward, really taking this this vast rep, uh, reservoir of experience and knowledge you've shared with us and really thinking about where we go forward uh, as as citizens. Uh, what do you think, uh, especially young citizens coming of age in our democracy today, what do they need to know and what do you hope they're discussing when they think about intelligence and the future of our democracy?
1: I hope they understand that all democracies have intelligence agencies. Every country that, that takes democracy seriously has also decided that they need to keep themselves secure, and an intelligence organization is part of that process. I think they need to understand that it's an ongoing effort for people in those agencies to understand where the limits are and what, the, what, what is important and what they need to do. Um, I worry a little bit now that in our heightened tribal partisan atmosphere. There are people who, you know, in this administration, who believe that these agencies should almost be, you know, for their personal benefit sure. to be, like we talked about before, politicization or being used for partisan means. And I really sort of worry about that. I One of my, my first tour overseas before I went to Russia was in Finland. And if you remember in the Cold War, there was a term called Finlandization. Yes, of course. And it was sort of a, a smaller country living next to a massive country, the Soviet Union. And Finland almost had to figure out what were the boundaries of what they could say and not say about their big neighbor. And over time, they sort of self-censored. So they understood how far they could go because they didn't want to antagonize or upset their larger neighbor and you get to a point where you don't even understand or realize that you're self-censoring yourself. Right. And I worry a little bit now as you see the president of the United States sort of attack these institutions, attack any of the institutions that could hold him accountable and even individuals inside the institution lower like that these organizations that we want to be robust and efficient and effective are going to start self-censoring themselves and understanding right. what they can do and what they you know, maybe we shouldn't, you know, collect on Russia stuff because maybe it'll upset the president. Like if we get to a point where these institutions are over worrying about what fits with a particular populist leader or not, it's going to hurt us all. And so I just don't I worry that we want the institutions to be robust. We want them to be strong, want them to be to do the job to keep us safe. We want to understand that they're doing things professionally and on a bipartisan, nonpartisan basis. I don't want them to become scared of upsetting individuals or certain parties.
0: Right. So we need to support professionalization and, and police the boundaries between politics and the, the technical work really and analytical work that these organizations
1: are doing. I, I, I do a lot of talking about Russia and, and Putin and sure. active measures and the things, disinformation, these things we've seen, this political warfare we've seen from the, from the Russians. And part of that is assassinations, and you've seen yeah. them in Europe assassinate you know, their enemies, sort of liquidate enemies. Sure, in England and elsewhere. And they obviously, one of the reasons they do this is to send a message back home. So they the, they kill someone with polonium or with nerve agent instead of just hitting them on the back of the head with a hammer because they're sending a message to people in their institutions, here's where the line is, here's what's going to happen to you if you cross the line. And in some ways, in a less insidious but the actions of the president now, where he's attacking people personally, is sending the message into these institutions: "This is what I won't allow." Here's a message, you know, back off. And so, both of those things are sort of dangerous. You're 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 sort of abusing power to try to to try to um, make make these institutions turn to your needs right. as opposed right. to for the country as a whole. It,
0: it's such an important point. I mean, I think the historical lesson is obvious. If you want people to speak truth to power, don't just valorize the dissidents, but protect the professionals and limit uh, the wielding of political power against people who are just trying to do their job, whether that's an ambassador to Ukraine uh,
1: or A whistleblower.
0: Or, right, a whistleblower. I mean, the reason we protect whistleblowers is just, as you said, so people can can speak truth to power and we have to set limits on ourselves when we have power. Right. Correct. Zachary, do you think that that this discussion for young people uh, like yourself, do you think this this helps to elucidate some of these issues or what, what do you think? I think just the fact that we're having these conversations and we're talking
2: about these issues, um, I think bodes really well for our democracy. I think if we're aware of these issues and if young people are educated on how complex these issues are, um, I think we have a bright future. But I think the problem is if we fall into either thinking that all these institutions are bad and defined by their past failures or thinking that...
0: Um, they're perfect, we're going to have a very dangerous road. Right, we need to actually understand that complex space, and each generation has to rethink yeah. Where where are the lines, right? What do we want our intelligence agencies to do? What is inappropriate in a democracy and what do we need for the security of our democracy? And it's an ongoing discussion. John, thank you so much for your your wisdom, your honesty and your input. And Zachary, thank you for your insights uh, as always. Thank you for joining us for this week of This is Democracy. Right.
1: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas
2: at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.